Good morning. Welcome to Mission View Church. My name is Matt. If this is your first time here, I'm the lead pastor here. So glad you've joined us for worship this morning. And you came on a, a great Sunday. Um, we are starting a new sermon series. And uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark. We're going to be in the book of Mark, the first chapter there. So go ahead and turn there. But i um, so glad you're with us. So glad we have some of our missionary partners here with us today that we can um, pray for them, celebrate with them, and, and hear about what's going on in their ministry. Who was here last week for Brother Benny as well? Just, um, man, it's been great to, to hear about what God's doing over in India and, and other parts of the world. And to partner with, with people like that, it kind of gives us a different perspective on church, doesn't it? Uh, to think that we can just gather anytime we want, uh, anywhere we want, really. We can come to a uh, public high school on Sunday morning, meet in the auditorium, and open God's Word together. Just a remarkable thing, really, if we look at it from uh, a perspective from around the world. We're just so thankful that we can do what God's allowed us to do here, but also partner with uh, ministry partners in parts of the world that do it at great risk, sharing the gospel at great risk. And we're so thankful um, that we can partner with you, and we're so glad that you're here with us this morning. Know that we are praying for you, and uh, we love you guys. So, all right, uh, this sermon series is called Launch, and uh, we're going to be talking about, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about how Jesus launched his ministry. We're going to see this in, in Mark. In Mark chapter 1, we'll be looking at these first eight verses. I had dinner uh, with a friend of mine this past week, and, and the conversation as we were talking went to kind of how the church in America has changed. And there's this, this word that kind of described Christians that were more conservative or orthodox in their beliefs called evangelicals. And um, I, was, I served in a, an evangelical United Methodist Church for eight years, and, and that evangelical meant that they held to a stricter doctrine or original beliefs of the Methodist Church. This evangelical Christian idea is the idea that, that we hold to those foundational beliefs, that we don't stray from the doctrine that has kind of held Christianity together together for so long. We, we hold to what Jesus taught. We hold to what the Bible teaches, that the Bible is the final word, the final say, the final authority. But over time, as I was talking with my friend, what we've seen is that evangelicalism today isn't what evangelicalism was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Things have changed so differently. But we, we're talking God's word doesn't change. You know, but, but culture shifts and culture changes and, and the morals in culture shift and change. And, and what we have seen is, is this idea of Christianity and evangelicalism changing. Like that, that definition has changed over time. And, and quite frankly, as we really got down to it, what we decided is that, that there's, there's a point in time that when you are walking with Christ or you say you're walking with Christ, and you don't submit to the authority of God's word. You don't do the things that God calls us to do. In fact, you reject those things and you don't claim them to be a truth anymore. And you change that truth that, that there's got to be a time where we take the label off, right? Like if you're not going to follow Christ, then don't call yourself a Christ follower, right? Like if you're not going to submit to the authority of God's word, then don't call yourself an evangelical Christian, right? 
And, and, and that's really what we were talking about, which was really kind of interesting, as we were discussing, you know, the history of Christianity and this, this massive surge over the last 20 years, 40 years that have really shifted Christianity in America. The book of Mark is a great place to, to really dive into this kind of stuff because it addresses this issue. It, it's a reminder to the church of who Jesus is, what he did, and what he promises to do. This revelation of historic truth, the incarnation, the world-changing work of Jesus is meant to inspire us to be the people of God. To be the people he's called us to be. It calls us back to a humble reverence and surrender. Now, by the time the early church had received uh, Mark's gospel, they had already heard and believed. Like a lot of Christianity in, in America today. A lot of people have heard the gospel. They've heard the good news of Jesus. They've grown up around it. So that they've had this already. And that's really what was happening in the early church with the gospel of Mark. They'd already heard it. They'd heard the good news of God's saving power through the person of Jesus Christ. But they needed to hear it again. They needed to hear it again. A new emphasis to catch afresh its implications for their lives in a dissolute and often hostile environment. They needed to understand the nature of discipleship, what it meant to follow Jesus in light of who Jesus is and, and what he had done and what he's going to keep doing in and through their lives. Now, there's several things that make Mark's gospel different than the other gospels. The first one is it emphasizes Jesus' actions more than his teachings. It's going to talk to us about his actions a little bit more than it does what he taught. Now Mark still records 18 of Jesus' miracles, um, but only four of his parables and only one of his major teachings. And as we read through this, we're going to hear a, a really pastoral overtone to this. That, it's one of the reasons Mark is one of my favorite gospels. And I'll probably say this as I preach through different gospels. All the gospels are my favorite. I'm just going to get that out there. They're all my favorite. And, I, and you probably heard me say, oh, this is like Titus. We just went through the book of Titus. I was like, oh, this is one of my favorite books. You're going to hear that every time I preach. I love the books of the Bible, right? And it's hard to pick one over the other. But one of the things I really love about the Gospel of Mark is this loving, fatherly, pastoral overtone that has through this whole thing. What we, we get, or what I get anyways, as I read through the Gospel of Mark is this, this guy who's a real people person. I don't know, I just get this, this, this feeling that Mark was this, this guy who loved people, he really cared about people, and as he watched Jesus interact with broken people, he was just drawn to this. He was just, it was like a magnet to him, and he, he watched all these things that Jesus did and was greatly moved, and I think it just comes through in the text as we're going to be studying through um, the book of Mark. So anyways, this is something that uh, the people in the early church desperately needed. And I believe for us today, especially in America and Christians anywhere in the world, this is something we desperately need. We need a fresh revelation of work and person of Jesus Christ. I heard a pastor say one time that it takes God to know God. We, what that means is that we are fully dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit, working in our hearts right now, as I'm about to read God's word to you, we are fully dependent on God, the Holy Spirit, to do a work in our lives right now. 
It takes God to know God. So let's pray that God would do that for us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, this opportunity we have to gather as your church. Father, we surrender to you. We surrender to your truth. We submit to your truth. Father, by the power of your spirit, illuminate the truth of your word in our lives that we would be able to conform to it. Give us courage, give us strength, empower us. Grow us and make us the people that you've called us to be, that we would not be the same today walking out of here as we were when we walked in, because we have met with our Creator, we have worshipped our Creator, and Father, we love you. Change us for your glory, for your kingdom, and for our good, in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a huge statement. You might want to underline, put a little star beside it. That's what I did. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I love it when we have Old Testament references in the New Testament. Right here, Mark is laying some serious groundwork that we're going to dive into the details of. This prophetic word from the book of Isaiah, also found in Micah, but he's this prophecy that has foretold the coming of Jesus Christ, the foretold even the one crying in the wilderness. We're going to learn who that is right here. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. Who has that in their diet? Anybody here? Locusts and honey? Going for the locusts and honey? Oh, just me? No, I'm just kidding. I don't eat it either. Gross. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. God's word for us today. The first thing I really want us to kind of wrap our minds around, the first thing I said, we probably want to underline this or circle it or whatever, is this, is that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark is laying the groundwork for everything else he's about to say, everything else, his account of the gospel of Jesus, he's laying the groundwork right here. Mark, it's this, the Son of God. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, his divinely given personal name is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Yeshua, Joshua, or Yahweh is salvation. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah or anointed one. It is used specifically of the deliverer anticipated in the Jewish world who would be God's agent in fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies about the one coming to save the world. This is Mark saying, Jesus is God. He's, he's not just some other guy. He's not just this. He is the Son of God. He is divine. He is unique. He is set apart. He is holy. He is different than anyone else. He was more than a prophet. He knew the future. He told the future. He even pointed out what, the, what people would do before they did them. He told 
Peter that he would deny him three times. And Peter said, no, I won't. And the next morning, Peter denied him three times. He's more than a prophet, though. He was more than a healer. He was a healer. He healed so many. He fed the thousands. He gave sight to the blind, strengthened the, the lame to walk. He gave a voice to the mute. He gave hearing to the deaf. He cleansed lepers. He even raised the dead. But he was more, and he is more than a healer. He was a teacher. He cared for those around him. He taught the disciples. He challenged them, corrected them. He called them out on their failures, even the ones that they would commit. He spoke the truth in love, but he was more than a teacher. He was a truth speaker. He pointed out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the lies of legalism. He brought with him a new covenant, a new promise from God to his people. Mercy would triumph over judgment and grace would come through him. It would come through Jesus. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. But he is more than a teacher. He was a wise man. He's quoted as a wise man, even outside of Christianity. He spoke in clear and concise teachings, but he also gave us parables that make us think. He gives moral direction and challenges the wisdom of the world. He is the wisest of men, but he is more than a wise man. Jesus is God. He walked in the power of the Most High. He was in the beginning and nothing was created without him. He is, was, and always will be. He knows all things and now sits at the right hand of God the Father. In power he reigns and sustains everything. He is a man. And he knows our suffering. He knows our struggle. He wept. He overturned tables. He rested, he prayed, he laughed, he loved the children and made time for them. He loved the least of these. He is the servant king, and he is God. He reached out to prostitutes, thieves, had dinner with tax collectors and traders. He loved the unlovable, touched the untouchable, and he loves you. He knew your name before you were born. Before time began, he set aside good things, good works for you to do. He has a plan and a destiny set aside for you. Because he is God. Isn't that good news? It's a short little statement that Mark makes that has so many implications for you and me today. He is one of the Trinity. He exists in the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity, three in one. And this, this mystery goes beyond the grip of our limited understanding, and we stand in awe at this triune, all-powerful, amazing God. Now you're asking me probably, you're thinking, why is it so, why is Matt spending so much time on this? Why is it so important that we believe that Jesus is God. Why is it so important that Mark is putting this statement right at the beginning of his gospel? You see, God knew that the divinity of Christ would be challenged, that Jesus' divinity would be challenged. So over and over again, it's made clear all throughout the Bible that Jesus is God. Now, think about it with me, if you will. If Jesus was just a man... He would be fallible, prone to weakness, 
and destined to fail. If he's just a man, he would not be able to live up to the standard of perfection that God had set. Just by God existing in perfection means the standard is perfection. Denying the divinity of Christ is a pathetic attempt to elevate man and sinful attempt to make less of God. If Jesus was just a man and he could live up to the standard that God has set and meet all the requirements, then what would stop us from doing the same without him? If we deny the divinity of Jesus, and he's just a man, and he lived up to God's standards, then why would we need him? Because we're just men and women, and we could do the same thing. Do you see how that gets really messed up in our thinking? If we take that rabbit trail, if we go down that road, this is a foolish theology about Jesus. It belittles God, elevates man, and any theology that makes much of man and little of God is wrong and false and most of the time heretical. Another reason the divinity of Jesus is so important is that we can know for sure, we know that we know that we know that the perfect standard God set has actually been accomplished. There's no doubt in our minds, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he did what he said he did. He lived up to the prophecies. He lived up to the standard. He's the only one who could. And now think about that for just a second. In Christianity, this religion that we follow, it's the only religion in the world where the God sets the standard, our God has set the standard, and then our God comes and meets the standard for us. It's the only one. Every other religion has people just striving and working and failing and striving and working and failing and striving and working and failing, falling on their face over and over again, never meeting, never matching up to what is meant to be. But in Christianity, we have Christ. We have Jesus who lived up to the perfect standard because he is God. And he did what he said he would do. And he's created a way for me and you. And when Jesus went to the cross... And he took our sin, our shame on himself. And he died that sinner's death that you and I deserve. Even though he lived the perfect life that we're called to. But can't do. Jesus made a way for me and you. On the third day he rose again from the grave defeating sin and death. And now when we put our faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ... His perfection, His righteousness, His holiness, all that stuff that I've talked about has just poured out over me and you. And when God looks down at us, He doesn't see Matt in his brokenness and failures and weakness and mess. He sees His Son. I've always said it this way, when we get to heaven we see those pearly gates and we've put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ. They're not gonna, they're gonna ask for our resume, but the one we hand them is Jesus's. Because there's nothing really all that great about my resume or yours, let's be honest. But through the work of Jesus Christ, when we hand over that resume, it is his. That's the gospel. And that's the divinity of Jesus, the power to do what only he could do for me and you. He put on flesh, lived out life on earth, and in that we find great comfort that we can go to him 
and our struggles, and he'll have compassion, and he'll understand because he was a man. And then he can help us because he is God. What a great God we serve, and what a great way to start out a gospel. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God, period. John 1, another one of the Gospels, verses 1 through 5 say this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now if you read down and you go to verse 13, it says this, or 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. All throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, Jesus divine, Jesus is God. Let's move on. Verse 3 of Mark chapter 1. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, you got to stick with me on this one. The second point I want to pull out of this section of the text is Jesus came to set us free from captivity. And you're probably thinking, where did you get that out of verse 3? Well, let's dump, jump into it. To understand this one, we need to know what Mark is quoting and why he's quoting it. So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. Go to open your Bibles to Isaiah 40. This is where we're getting some of this from. Mark is quoting this. It says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, Isaiah is prophesying the exile and captivity that was coming. Not only that, he was prophesying the freedom that would then come later. And here's what was really going on. The Israelites, God's people, needed comfort. They needed freedom. In this exile, it was going to be generations. They were going to forget what freedom was like. But God wasn't going to forget about them. He would remember his promise. And he remembered the destiny that he had set aside for his chosen ones. Mark is quoting the prophecy of comfort and freedom from Isaiah, given hundreds of years earlier. This prophecy, like so many others, was a foretelling of Christ's coming and what he would bring. And we, like the Israelites, were in exile and captivity. We had been in captivity for so long, we didn't even know what freedom felt like. We had sinned. We lived in sin, blind to our own blindness. When captivity is all you know, it's all you know. We, like the Israelites, were in exile from the presence of God. We didn't have his Holy Spirit in us. We were dead in our sins, lost without hope. We were dry bones. We were the captives. We were the exiles. That prophecy in Isaiah means so much more than just this exile of the Israelites and the freedom that would come. He's talking about you and me. We were exiled. We were in captivity to sin. But God, 
This is what Mark is pointing out about the prophets that had come. God has come. Jesus is here. And he is here to set the captives free. Just like Isaiah prophesied. The king has come. And he has come for you and me. Now let's just let that sink in for just a little bit. Hundreds of years before Jesus came. He was prophesied. It was foretold that he would come. And not only... Was it foretold that he would come? We know that since it was prophesied hundreds of years in advance, we know that this has been God's plan all along. That it's not just some happenstance. It's not just some chaos in this world and God's up there going, oh no, what am I going to do? How am I going to solve this problem? Maybe I'll just dish out this card or this thing or whatever it may be. No. God has had a plan. And God is working his will and his way no matter what. Not only has Jesus come to set us free, but his coming has been the plan all along. God has been working this plan. It's not some accident or reactionary rescue plan. It is the one true sovereign God working his will and his way throughout all time and into eternity, and nothing can thwart his purposes. Just like God had been faithful to his chosen people, the Israelites, he would be faithful to his word to bring a hope to all people. Jesus, his son, he would send just like he promised. Mark is pointing out the hope we have in Christ. He is the one, the Messiah, talked about throughout all the centuries. He has come, and he has come to bring freedom and set the captives free. Let's pick it up back in verse 4. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey, and he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Why does it bring in John the Baptist here? This is, this is an important thing for us to really think about here. John was the forerunner. He was a prophet. He was saying, hey, the Messiah is coming. One that I, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. John the Baptist had hundreds and hundreds of disciples and followers. This guy, there was he, was, he was hated by the Pharisees and everything else too, but he was, I mean, he was like the guy, he was like the Billy Graham of the time, baptizing all of these people and preaching, and God was using him. He was a prophet. You see, there had been 400 silent years. No prophets, no prophecies, 400 silent years. We knew that the prophet Amos prophesied those 400 silent years. But they would come to, a, to an end. When John the Baptist appeared and started prophesying, the Messiah is coming. He is here. And I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then we have this picture of this John the Baptist, right? This prophet that God sends before Jesus, making a way. It says he's, he's like this wild man eating locusts and honey and he's in the wilderness and you just get this, this picture wearing camel's hair, you know? This guy is just like, it's crazy. 
But that was kind of a picture of what the prophets were like. There's an, another prophet mentioned in the Old Testament that ate locusts and honey. Anybody, any Bible quizzers out there know who that was? Elijah, one of the most respected prophets of all time. I mean, this was, this was kind of a mark of a prophet that these, were, these wild men eating locusts and honey, right? That's why that mark puts this in here. Now, as cool as it is that John the Baptist is a fulfillment of prophecy and is a prophet that is prophesying Jesus is coming, he is not the point of this text. John's not the center of this text. Jesus is the center. John is just another proof that Jesus is who he said he is and who we believe him to be. And when he comes, the point here, John is saying, he is going to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water. Jesus baptizes with his spirit. And that's the third fill-in in your notes. Jesus came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. This is huge. This is huge for you and me. Now get this. We are filled, empowered, strengthened, encouraged, convicted, courageous in the Holy Spirit at conversion. Because at conversion, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you and me. Can I get an amen? That is really, really, really good news. The Holy Spirit, God, lives inside of you and me. The Holy Spirit initiates the work of conversion, salvation. God, the Holy Spirit, moves in our hearts, brings conviction of sin. This is the calling to repent that John the Baptist preached and Jesus preached throughout his ministry. God, through his Spirit, softens our hearts to the truth, opens our eyes to the grace of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. He brings understanding to us, to his word. We can read his word and it changes us because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, illuminating it to our hearts. It changes our minds and grows us into the people he's called us to be. The Holy Spirit initiates sanctification. Not just salvation, but sanctification or growth in our lives. Because of the Holy Spirit living in us, we can read Galatians 5 that says, But the fruit of the Spirit... Living in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Anybody need some self-control today? Against such things there is no law. These are the things that start to grow in our lives because we have been baptized in the power of the Spirit. Now I wanted to point this out because I think there's been a lot of confusion around baptism over the Holy Spirit over the last hundred years or so. The phrase baptized with the Holy Spirit actually only occurs seven times in the New Testament. One of them's right here in Mark 1.8. The others are Matthew 3.11, Luke 3, John 1, and then in Acts 1.11, and then 1 Corinthians 12.13. The modern charismatic movement has taken this to mean that when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak in tongues like the disciples did at Pentecost. Some even believe that you're not even saved until you speak in tongues. Now, admission of you, we reject that teaching. We believe salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by any works of man so that no one may boast. We also believe this understanding of all Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit at conversion is consistent with what has been taught throughout the scriptures. 
Now I want to take a quick look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, one of the seven verses of the New Testament where Paul really clarifies this idea. It says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We are all baptized and drink of one spirit at salvation. Pentecost and other references to speaking in tongues at conversion all have to do with the extension of God's kingdom through the preaching of the word so that others can understand and respond to the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ. God uses it to extend his kingdom. And we believe that God still empowers us today to share the good news with others. In those moments when the gospel is being shared, when God opens the door for you to share your testimony or share the good news of what God has done in your life through the work of Jesus Christ, that is the Holy Spirit empowering you to speak truth and to speak life into someone who doesn't know Christ. This, I think this is where we, I think we've missed the boat a little bit. We overlook those Holy Spirit empowered situations. Where you're talking with your friend and all of a sudden that conversation just shifts. And they ask, ask a question. Well, you know, why are you going to church every Sunday? Why does why is your, your life look so much differently? As I was meeting with um, our missionary, I'm not going to say his name, but when we were mission, meeting with our missionary, he was talking about how he was sharing God's love um, with um, some Afghan refugees. And um, they were asking him, or it might have been his wife actually, they were asking his wife, why are you so happy? Why do you have so much joy? And the response was easy. Jesus. Jesus has given us joy. It's in that kind of conversation, in that moment, that the Holy Spirit empowers us, speaks through us, supernaturally gives us the words to share for the extension of God's kingdom. Listen, God is using you. Look for those opportunities. Look for those open doors. God is supernaturally, by the power of his spirit, wanting to use you for his kingdom. And we think that, oh, I just had a conversation with my neighbor. It was just a conversation with my neighbor. Oh, whoa, 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 hold on a second. What kind of conversation was it with your neighbor? What is God doing in that moment, in that instant? Where is he working? I, I think sometimes we just don't look for it. We don't think about it enough. It's not at the forefront of our minds. So often we get caught up in looking for some supernatural miracle. We forget or ignore the constant, everyday, miraculous work of God empowering us in every moment. So many churches are looking for a miracle, missing the miraculous work God wants to do in their hearts and in their lives, in their conversations. You know, we pray for revival. We pray for healing. We pray that God would do whatever he wants to do. But we don't take for granted the miracles he's doing right here, right now, every day in our lives. We want to be a church that is more excited about God saving someone than God healing someone. And don't, don't get me wrong, both are awesome, right? Both are awesome. But only one of those secures somebody's eternity. Are you following me there? Only one of those secures someone's eternity. Healing is great, but it's temporary. Because one day, one day soon, 
all of us are going to be completely healed and set free. Because I got some really good news for you this morning. Jesus is coming back again. Jesus is coming again. And when we see him face to face, all of the brokenness, all of the achy back and sore knees and all of COVID and all of the worries and all of the questions and all of the struggles and all of depression and all of anxiety and all of the stuff that has been hindering us and hurting us and holding us down is going to be gone because Jesus is who? God. And Jesus is going to do what he said he will do. Three huge truths Mark points out as he begins to tell us the story of Jesus that we can't forget. Jesus is God. Jesus came to set the captives free. And Jesus came to baptize us with his spirit. As we go through Mark, everything that Mark's going to share through his gospel is built on those three truths. Those are three life-changing truths for you and me. And I, my prayer is that as we jump into this launch series, that, that God uses it to really reveal to us more and more what it means that Jesus is God, that he set us captives free, and that he's baptized us in his spirit. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel of Mark that we're jumping into. And Father, as we seek to know you more, we seek to grow in relationship with you, Father, we pray that your spirit would reveal to us what it means that Jesus is God. More so, deepen our understanding. What it means that Jesus came to set captives free, Father. What is our part in that? Use us. Use us to share your truth, the good news of Jesus. And Father, what it means to be empowered, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Help us to live Holy Spirit-empowered lives, Father. Used for your kingdom and your glory. We pray that you would use us up, Father, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song this morning.